Mackerel Sky is swimming offshore in Kalini Bay. The transcendence of the beauty won't let my heart drift away. Between man-made darkness and man-made light, the sun of freedom shines, laser beam of illumination piercing the cloudy gray confines. And through the chinks I find myself, holy breeze blows out the chaff, accept it, I last, at last accept myself, allowing my soul to laugh. I've seen a new awakening through this pilgrimage of pain. From the birth of a new beginning, I've begun to grow up again. I've had feelings of doubt and doubted my feelings, yet on the rock of truth I've built, love, security, significance, and been relieved of a mountain of guilt. Freed from the demons of sectarianism, Freed from looking over my shoulder, freed from the icy stares of disapproval, freed from hearts that are even colder, freed to find the purity of me that's there beneath the sin, freed to find the heart of me that's being redeemed within. So my heart reaches out to touch, the grace reaching out to me, born to be wild as the breeze that blows, unpredictable and free between man-made darkness and man-made light the sun of freedom shines the verses we've just read in Matthew chapter 6 are what John Stott and there's books that really you can never get away from and I read uh, the, um, the Bible speaks today John Stott in about 1984 uh, around the same time, I was reading um, uh, contemporary issues, issues from contemporary Christianity, that, that one, Issues Facing Christians Today, was that it? And those two books were very um, formative uh, at my time at university, and uh, John Stott's Sermon the Mount's hard to get away from, and I know that Jonathan is the same. We've, we've looked at others, various other commentaries and do, but mostly we come back to that one. And way back in 1984, the thing that stood out for me was the fact that Stott built everything in the whole Sermon on the Mount around chapter 6 and verse 8 that we've read together today. Do not be like them, Stott said, was the hinge on which he believed this entire sermon swung. Of course, it's immediately reminiscent, and Stott would add that, to God's word to Israel. Leviticus 18 and 3, you shall not do as they do. And if we remember back to the start of this series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's writing it, and he's got a few agendas, one of which is to root Jesus in the Jewish tradition, and the other is that that Jewish tradition is about deliverance from those cycles that go on around us, and we will come back to the deliverance a little bit later. But again here, do not be like them. You shall not do as they do. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's wanting to point out that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is moving through the tradition from the Old Testament. Last week, Jonathan showed us how we could break the cycles of tit for tat. But what about this, do not be like them today? <coughs> Excuse me. Who are we not to be like? 
Well, it seems to me there's two things in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is telling us not to be like. And I've said it way back in time in the poem. Between man-made darkness and man-made light. Human-made darkness and human-made light. Though if you put that in a poem, you've already another syllable, and there were too many syllables in that particular line of poetry without having the full human in. Man-made darkness and man-made light. The pagans, do not be like them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's saying, do not be like them, because blessed are the meek. Those are not the blesseds of our culture around us. Those are not the blesseds of our time or any time. Nobody's saying that we should be aiming to be poor in spirit, to be mourning, to be meek. Because those people in the world that we live in don't get very far. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, do not be like them, because blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek, and theirs will be the kingdom of God. And it's easy for us in church, I think, to say when we say do not be like them, to look at the man-made darkness. We don't want to be like that world out there. That world out there is in a shocking state, and we want to be somehow different. That's the easy part. But where Jesus comes in these verses in chapter 6 seems to me to be about man-made light. As well as man-made darkness, there is man-made light. There are things going on in religiosity that are not God-created either, not God's ways. You can see the Pharisees nipping around the edge of uh, this sermon probably on the mountain, you know, because if you look at Jesus' life, you always find that when he's telling a story or when he's teaching, there's a few Pharisees around the edge trying to catch him out. And Jesus would have been saying to the, the poor, unreligious, irreligious people who the Pharisees would have been condemning and judging, he would have been saying, now, you know, uh, they don't commit adultery. But actually, they think about it. They don't murder, but actually, they think about it. You're all the same. Just because they look more religious or because they flaunt their religion publicly doesn't mean that God loves you any less than them. These Pharisees that are around the edge, Jesus is saying here, do not be like the man-made light. Now, of course, the three things within um, Judaism were prayer, giving, and fasting, and it would still be the same today. These would be three disciplines that would be held very dearly within uh, the Jewish faith. Prayer, giving, and fasting. And Jesus is not against prayer, giving, and fasting. As we come to them today, you will see without me being a hypocrite that um, the giving and the prayer is a bit easier for me than the fasting, even with all that's gone on over the last eight months or so. But we're not suggesting that because we're not going to be like this man-made light that we don't do the things that the light should do. It's the motivation that Jesus is getting at principally here. What causes us to give? What causes us to pray? What causes us to fast? Because it seems to me that as we read this and as we read the rest of the Gospels, that there was a lot of great play-acting going on in the religiosity of Jesus' day. I'm not sure whether there was actual trumpets, as Jesus says in this part of the Sermon on the Mount that we've just read, 
but you can be sure that these Pharisees wanted to show the people around them that they were holier than them. It's the guy coming out of Scripture Union in the children's story with the big black Bible. As I was preparing this, Janice said that somebody told her once, the bigger the Bible, the less the faith. I've got quite a big one, so I'm not... Generalize, generalize, I think, on that one. But it's that kind of thing where we want to prove ourselves better or show ourselves to be better or make sure. And sometimes within the human spirit, there is that defensive self comes from making others worse. Somehow, if we can show ourselves superior to other people in whatever way it might be, that somehow gives us some sense of appeasement for the guilt or the lack of whatever we have. And reward, we will come to you in this because reward is peppered right through the reading that Sue did. What does that mean? But that's maybe what we're trying to do. The Pharisees were trying to get a reward for being holy within themselves. Oh, look at me. At least I pray better than them. Think of the parable of the Pharisee going down to pray and saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. And the other praying, God, have mercy on me. But for the Pharisee, his reward was self-giving. Oh, I can tell myself that I'm better than him, so I'll feel a little bit. This was what was going on in Jesus' time. It's maybe going on in my life too. It's maybe going on in all of our lives. It's maybe going on in Fitzroy. It's maybe going on in how we relate outside of Fitzroy. But Jesus is interested most in the motivation of the heart. Faith is a verb that's motivated from the heart. Think of the woman who gave her last little farthing quietly. She was the one Jesus said had given the most, probably humbly, and would have been embarrassed to have known that Jesus was watching as she put it in. But her motivation, her love in the heart, was authentic discipleship. Maybe even in our own world, we have our own 2013 ways of being Pharisees publicly. I know that in the world that I move around in as a cleric, that uh, there was a time when you had to be evangelical to be in. But then evangelical as a phrase became a little bit loose and you needed to be reformed, whatever reformed meant in the definition. You need to be biblical. But I have friends who use the same Bible and could discuss very openly very different interpretations on the same things, but sometimes people say, well, I'm the one who's biblical. Well, or the big word in college was, are you sound? Did somebody tell me recently that they were, they'd moved church, and they weren't come to Fitzroy, but they'd moved to another church, and the, the person from their home church said, now, would that be a sound evangelical church? And maybe in Northern Ireland, those are the ways that we make ourselves superior. The church we go to, the group of people that we are in with, or whatever else. What are the motivations for doing that? Do we strut our credentials the way the Pharisees strutted their prayer and their giving and their fasting? To go back to Stott, he says this, the followers of Jesus are to be different different from the nominal church in the secular world, different from both the religious and irreligious. 
The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived under the divine rule. My poem that I was quite surprised at yesterday when I look back on, I wrote that I think about 1991. I don't think Chris uh, Fry's here today, but uh, what was happening is that Heather Carey, who I don't think here is either, so I can talk about it. Um, Heather was running a mission in Grosvenor Baptist in Dublin, and I was the speaker at the mission, and Chris's band was the band. It was grunge time, 1991, and boy, were they grungy. And um, on the Sunday night, it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday night event, and on the Sunday night, Heather and Chris came to me, and they said, we've got a bit of a problem here, because the band want to do Born to be Wild, but it's Sunday, and we're in a Baptist church. Let's not strut our credentials here, but it was an issue. So Chris is determined they think they should sing this. And Heather's a bit concerned about the leadership of the church if they hear that this was to be sung. So me, ever trying to be creative, thought, I'll put a poem together that will finish with words like, born to be wild. And then you can go straight into it as part of the poem. And so I put this together to do that And I guess what I put into it was my journey of faith, moving from Ballymena to Belfast to Dublin, not only geographically, but maybe in my own spiritual journey. And finding that between man-made darkness and man-made light, the sun of freedom could shine in that way that Jesus spoke in John 3 about where it goes, we don't know from where it goes to where it it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus isn't talking about the Spirit there. He's talking about those born of the Spirit who would be unpredictable and free, who would have the motivation of their hearts, not looking over their shoulder to try and appease the world, nor looking over their shoulder to try and appease the church, but seeking to find Jesus, as he calls us to follow, not trying to impress the world and not trying to impress the church, doing it because we know that the best life we can have is the one that follows Jesus. But if you remember correctly, I spoke about Matthew being interested in the continuing of the tradition and deliverance. Is what he says about prayer and giving and fasting in these verses in chapter 6, could they have anything to do with deliverance? Well, if you remember back a couple of years ago when Nicholas Waltersdorf spoke right here, he translated the word righteousness as the word justice. Is there anything in our giving and our praying and our fasting and the motivation of how we do it that we could actually be involved in the deliverance of justice? Well, another commentator that I've used heavily in this series, Clem Stassen from Fuller uh, Seminary, says these three things have got transformative justice within them. Giving, 
changes things. Now, let's talk about giving for a minute, because already we've asked for giving for our overseas missional, uh, our overseas personnel, and for Presbyterian Church in Ireland doing all the stuff that the Presbyterian Church in Ireland does uh, wonderfully around Ireland. So, we've asked you to give to that. We're now asking you to give to buildings out the back, and no doubt there will be many other things that we'll be asking you to give to. Does giving become something that you're thinking, oh, here they go again, they're looking for our money? Or are the motivations of our hearts, the center of why we do things, the rewards that we might be looking for, are they so different than the world that our giving to other things becomes almost a joyous thing rather than an onerous thing? Because in this giving, we believe that we're bringing deliverance. If we could talk to Alan further, that deliverance that comes when there's kids in a hospital who've been abandoned and people come in to love them, to play with them, to read them stories, or even those children that are orphaned that Alan and Sheena have brought into their homes and delivered them from that. Or for Carl, as she's gone back to Danny and Goldie and Maureen, trying to deliver people from the many difficulties of inner-city London on the Isle of Dogs. Or as Colin tries to minister to those needing some theological training and vocational training and all kinds of other kinds of training in the south of Argentina so that the church might deliver a part of the country from whatever it is that they need deliverance from. As we support those things, as well as drug rehabilitation in a Presbyterian church or older people's homes or <coughs> um, young offenders' homes, as we give, we're involved in God's deliverance. We're involved in God's kingdom coming. It's one way we can do it. It's one way we maybe need to learn how to do it better and with more motivation from the heart. Prayer. This week, a few of us braved the cold Thursday night, and Jonathan and Sue had already done it during the day, and we walked around part of the city just out here and prayed. <coughs> and it was amazing, excuse me, just how as we went around the city that on Thursday night we prayed for education, commerce, the emergency services, churches, the homeless, the clubbers, the sex workers, the foreign uh, visitors, the local government, the media. Just in one hour walking around the city, we prayed for a series of different situations that needs deliverance. Now, we didn't. We did pray on street corners, but we didn't do it with trumpets. We just quietly stopped, took a moment to think about that area, looked around us, and then walked on and prayed as we went. Giving and prayer are transformational. They're missional. Fasting, as I said, is not one that I can talk to you honestly about without being a bit of a hypocrite. Yes, I've tried it here and there. But interestingly, when we had our trimming the, tel the telly tubby, sorry, that wasn't what it was at all, uh, trimming the, temp, the, the tubby temple uh, evening just a couple of weeks ago. If you're a visitor among us, um, I was, uh, I've lost a quarter of my weight since last June, and, um, and I was sharing the journey of that. And in the sharing of the journey of that and the discussion that happened after it, 
we were taken back to the issues of greed, the issues of injustice, the if campaign. Is what we do in our eating habits in our homes linked to there's enough food for everybody if? So fasting is not just some discipline that God has given us that we might pray more at lunchtime and eat less. It's so that we might be able to deal with the fact that other people don't have what we have and that we might deal with our greed in a way that delivers us and maybe the world from some of the poverty, hunger, and greed situations around us. But let me come then finally to another word that bugged me all week. And it's in here a few times. You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. You've received your reward already. What does Jesus mean here by reward? And how can we, by the way we do our praying and our giving and our fasting, how can we be rewarded differently? Well, what is the reward we seek? If we want to find today that other people in Fitzroy think we're holy, and that's the reward that we want, then actually praying in public, having a big black Bible, and making sure everybody knows the big check that you put in, 300,000 is actually what we were looking for if you really want to impress. <laughs> just tell us who you are and we're happy with it just at this moment. No. If that's what you want, then that's the reward you'll get. If you want to help somebody like the punk rocker or the good Samaritan without any hoopla just because what will your reward be? And I suppose what I want to ask you today is what is that thing deep down in your soul deep down in your life that you've had most satisfaction out of in life? The thing that you've done that you've thought that makes me feel good. Because I think if we investigated that, if we allowed the Holy Spirit to turn on that and to shine the light of God on that, you would know where you are in that journey. Was it when somebody said, great sermon, Steve? Or was it something Steve did that nobody ever knows about, but that maybe somehow helped? what is it? What is your reward? Is it a BT address? Is it something? Is it some applause? Or is there something deeper? You know what I'm talking about. Is there something unseen? Is there something that when we do it, we just feel inside John Montgomery, who we shared the tribute of just a couple of Sundays ago, three Sundays ago, I think. At his tribute service in Portadown the Friday after, for those who are visitors, John passed away while in India at 52 years of age just a few weeks ago. And um, at his his, uh, memorial service in Portadown the next Friday, the number of people in that room who got really quite annoyed that they weren't the only people that John had built a treehouse for was remarkable. The stories that were coming out in this church hall of what John had done for people, people here, 
people who sat with him and didn't even know his second name and that I was talking about him when I gave the tribute. But he made a difference in their lives. People all across the world, Cambodia, Canada, America, India, people who said, oh, John came and he just went and he got the stuff and he just did that and sorted it. Every time I click the gate in the manse, although another part of the gate's now bust and I can't ring John or I can't hope that he'll hear this sermon and come up and fix it even when I'm not listening because that's what happened. Mentioned it to him in Philip's house, went away, came back, gate's fixed, who did that? When we've reflected on John's life, many of us, what we've discovered is that he didn't want any applause. He didn't want any great reward. He just wanted to do it for God and for others. And the impact that he made in people's lives is huge. Did he know about it in this life? I don't think so. But is that what matters? Because we now all know the impact that he made and he has his reward. In the old coffee bar days, I asked those young 16-year-olds who didn't want to listen to me, maybe some of you have given up on that now. I used to say to them, oh, you're tough tonight, but when you get back into the quiet of your bedroom, what is it that you think is most important in your life? Can I ask us today, tonight, in the quiet of our lives, away from everybody else, let's ask ourselves, what's the reward we want? What are we investing our giving, our praying, our fasting, and all our other love as a verb words? What are we investing our lives in? That other people will think we're great? That we'll have material gain? Or is there something deeper? Is there something deeper that says to us where our deep gladness could meet the world's deep need would give us the joy that God wants to give us for being involved in what he is about in our world? What are we living for? The Pharisees were living for their own glory and soundness and religious whatever. Jesus says, do not be like between man-made darkness and man-made light, the sun of freedom shines. Let us follow him. Let us pray. God, the the psalmist asks that you would search our hearts. And so we ask now that you would. What are our motivations, Lord? Where do our ambitions lie? What is it we're investing our lives in? What is the reward that we're seeking? Lord, perhaps we're tempted and distracted to the wrong rewards. Search us, Lord, and lead us as the last hymn was sharing us, sharing with us in the ways of the Savior. May we not be like the man-made world outside or the man-made light of religiosity. 
May we find Jesus and the freedom he brings. And may our motivation be to serve him and others. In Jesus' name, amen.